Now, as we continue to worship, we turn to Genesis 48. Genesis 48. It's only 22 verses. Not 66 or 50. Let me read the text. Genesis 48. Now, it came about after these things that Joseph was told, Behold, your father is sick. So he took his two sons, Manasseh and Ephraim, with him. When I was told to Jacob, Behold, your son Joseph has come to you, Israel collected his strength and sat up in bed. Then Jacob said to Joseph, God Almighty appeared to me at Luz in the land of Canaan and blessed me. He said to me, Behold, I will make you fruitful and numerous, and I will make you a company of peoples, and give this land to your descendants after you for an everlasting possession. Now, your two sons, who were born to you in the land of Egypt before I came to you in Egypt, are mine. Ephraim and Manasseh shall be mine, as Reuben and Simeon are mine. But your offspring that you have been born that have been born after them shall be yours, for they shall be called by the names of their brothers in their inheritance. Now as for me, when I came from Padan, Rachel died to my sorrow in the land of Canaan on the journey. When there was still some distance to go to Ephrat, I buried her there on the way to Ephrat, that is Bethlehem. When Israel saw Joseph's sons, he said, Who are these? Joseph said to his father, They are my sons, whom God has given me here. So he said, Bring them to me, please, that I may bless them. Now the eyes of Israel were so dim from age that he could not see. Then Joseph brought them close to him, and he kissed them and embraced them. Joseph said, sorry, Israel said to Joseph, I never expected to see your face. And behold, God has let me see your children as well. Then Joseph took them from his knees and bowed with his face to the ground. Joseph took them both, Ephraim with his right hand toward Israel's left, and Manasseh with his left hand toward Israel's right, and brought them close to him. But Israel stretched out his right hand and laid it on the head of Ephraim, who was the younger, and his left hand on Manasseh's head, crossing his hands, although Manasseh was the firstborn. He blessed Joseph and said, The God before whom my fathers Abraham and Isaac walked, the God who has been my shepherd all my life to this day, the angel who has redeemed me from all evil, bless the lads. And may my name live on in them, in the names of my fathers, Abraham and Isaac. And may they grow into a multitude in the midst of the earth. When Joseph saw that his father laid his right hand on Ephraim's head, it displeased him. And he grasped his father's hand to remove it from Ephraim's head to Manasseh's head. Joseph said to his father, Not so, my father. For this one is the firstborn. Place your right hand on his head. But his father refused and said, I know, my son, I know. He also will become a people. He also will be great. However, his younger brother shall be greater than he. And his descendant shall become a multitude of nations. He blessed them that day, saying, By you, Israel, 
will pronounce blessing, saying, May God make you like Ephraim and Manasseh. Thus he put Ephraim before Manasseh. Then Israel said to Joseph, Behold, I'm about to die, but God will be with you and bring you back to the land of your fathers. I give you one portion more than your brothers, which I took from the hand of the Amorite with my sword and my bow. Father, as we do continue to worship you, we do sing hallelujah, what a great redeemer and king we have, the greatest deliverer, the greatest king ever, Lord. And we do pray for the return of the king, Lord, you, Lord Christ. And now as we are in your word, we pray that you speak to us, convict us, challenge us, comfort us, build us up, Lord, that we might become more like Christ. For your glory, Lord. Amen. Years ago, there was a mentor that I had in India. Not Chris Williams, the primary Indian that I worked with, but there was another Indian by the name of Dr. Sreesender. And he was a medical doctor who gave up his practice to go into the ministry. And the Lord used him in, in a great way and a whole group of churches were planted and grew through his ministry. Again, his name was Dr. Shreesand. He was very kind to me, always ready to hear any questions that I had. Some years ago, he died, and I went to see him before he died, and I thought he could be down and depressed, maybe struggling that his life is over. So I brought a bunch of books for him to read about death and dying. And so when I went to visit him, I, I talked with him, and he told me actually that he had, he had eaten too much meat. He said he hardly ate any vegetables ever, so you should eat your vegetables. <laughs> he was an Indian, and in, in, in India, he ate mostly meat all the time. And it wrecked his kidneys. But he said he thought that he made the best choice. But I pulled out all my books. I had this big bag, and I pulled out all these books. And I said, Dr. Friesender, I brought these for you. I know you could be going to be with the Lord soon. So here's a mass of books. And he was sitting down over here. And he said, Tom, I don't have time to read all those books. And so I thought, yes, I know, because you're dying. you know, And you can probably hardly read and so I said something like, I, I know, you're, you know, it, it's hard and you're in pain. And he said, no, I have too much work to do. And then he turned around, and on the counter, he had stacks and stacks of books he was translating. And he said, I don't have time to read MacArthur books, Piper books. I have to translate all these books here into Marathi before I die. I don't have time. Tom, get to work. Get to work, Tom. I love you. Get to work. And now he's with my mom in heaven, probably saying to my mom, Let's talk to Jesus about Tom getting to work. Tom's got to get to work. Work harder. So this man, on his deathbed, his I thought his message to me was, Tom, thank you for your kindness. Get busy. <laughs> work hard until the end. And I think that is similar to the message that we have here in Genesis 48. We see in verse 30 of chapter 47, Jacob talks about his death and that he could be 
buried soon. It says in 48 verse 1, look, your father is sick. And then later on, down in the passage, he himself says that he's about to die. So I think in this passage, you have on this patriarch's deathbed, you have a message that he's giving to you and I and to all of us today. And I would say that this deathbed message is primarily how to live in the present by faith. So on his deathbed, he teaches us how to live in the presence and the present by faith, by trusting God. And basically, that will be laid out by four words. The first word is stare. So you have this man, patriarch Jacob, he's dying from his deathbed. He has a message to Joseph, to Israel, the nation Israel, as they read the book of Genesis when they're wandering around in the wilderness. But also the inspired word speaks to the church, speaks to us about how to live by faith in the present from a man that's dying on his deathbed. He, he's about to die. What are his last words? What's his message? It's to live by faith in God now in the present. What does that mean? Number one, stare. Number two is reach. Reach. Stretch. Reach. Number three is follow. Follow. F-O-L-L-O-W. Follow. And then number four, the fourth word that we'll use is look. Look. And we're going to change that a little bit and add some, but at least it gives you a direction of the outline. So this man that is finishing well, Jacob didn't necessarily start the race well, but he's finishing well. And as he finishes well, he gives a message about faith. And first, we're going to look at the word stare, but let me before I do that, remind you of Hebrews 11.21. And we saw this briefly last week. Hebrews 11.21 says, By faith Jacob, as he was dying, blessed each of the sons of Joseph and worshipped, leaning on the top of his staff. So basically, from Genesis 47 all the way to the end maybe of Genesis 49, is what Hebrews 11.21 would be referring to. So Hebrews 11.21 says, By faith, Jacob is blessing his children. What is interesting is it doesn't say, By faith, Jacob saw the stairway that went to heaven and all the angels were on it. It doesn't say, Hebrews 11.21, By faith, Jacob wrestled the angel of the Lord. Right? Hebrews 11, when it gives the, the hall of faith, it usually takes what seems to be the most significant part of that believer's life where they exercised great faith. And it highlights that as an example for us. Well, for Jacob, it's highlighting his blessing of his kids. That that took what? Faith. How does... Blessing your kids, take faith. (laughs) Do you know Jacob's children? Then you know to bless them would take great faith. (laughs) Truly. (laughs) They they were rascals. They they were really bad. 
But Jacob believes. When he was born, he and as a teenager, a young man didn't have that much faith. But now at the end of his life, before he dies, how is he ending? He's ending well. He's ending his life well. That's how I, I want to end. I don't know when I'm going to die. But when I die, by grace, I hope I end well. And so as Jacob's dying, again, he's saying basically, main theme is live by faith now to his children. To us, to Israel, the nation Israel and the church, and a pilgrim. So the first word then we're going to look at that will highlight this, that, that will bring this out clearly, is the word stare. Or you can say, first, this deathbed speech teaches us how to live by faith in the present by staring at the awesomeness of God. In this passage, there is actually a lot of data on theology proper. There's a lot of statements and descriptions about the doctrine of God. When Jacob is ending his life, he's basically preaching truth about the character of God to his children, especially to Joseph and Manasseh and Ephraim. Fix your attention on the Lord, is what he's saying to his children. Again, he's about to die and his parting advice, but by blessings, by prayer, by the content of what he's saying is, God is awesome. And so I gave you the word stare. Have you guys ever had that staring contest where you just pick out somebody like Elizabeth? Stare. And you just look at that person and whoever blinks last is the loser. Ah, no, right? That like you, you don't want to lose, and so you just oh, you're blinked. That is the way that we must look at God and His Word. This unflinching gaze upon the truth, upon the reality that God is. For example, look at verse three. This is Jacob, God Almighty. Do you remember God Almighty, El Shaddai? Do you, do you remember what that means? El Shaddai, God Almighty. El Shaddai is the idea of a mountain and a, a mom's breast that's giving milk to her child. It's the idea that God is mighty to provide, is the idea. God is strong to provide for all those that need him. And so that's what Jacob is saying to his children. God is sufficient. He is mighty in his sufficiency. Verse 4. God is able. And even Jacob says, behold, which is a term that gets attention. He's saying, look. God said that he's going to be abundant in his grace. He's going to be abundant in his promises. I will make... And again, I will make and I will give you these promises. He's able, he's capable, he's sufficient, he's abundant in all these things. And then verse 11, Israel said to Joseph, 
I never expected to see your face. And behold, look, look, are, are you getting the point? God has let me see your children as well. He's talking about God's sovereign plan, God's purposes. God is sovereign over all things. I, I thought you were dead and I was hundreds and hundreds of miles away from you. And now, after 22 years, not only am I seeing my favorite son, I'm seeing the sons of my favorite son. And so Jacob is just amazed at God's grace, God's bounty, God's strong, sufficient provision. And he's sharing these things clearly and greatly with his children. Now, this is different than 17 years earlier. Genesis 47, verse 9, So Jacob said to Pharaoh, The years of my sojourning are 130. Few and unpleasant have been the years of my life. That was probably about 17 years earlier. Different Bible Old Testament scholars say it had been about 17 years that Jacob was able to live with Joseph. And now at the end of Jacob's life, he's not, my life has been really hard, really terrible. It's been stinky. I hate it. He's not denying that he had hard times, but now he's saying God made all these promises. He has kept, he is keeping his promises. He's done the unexpected in terms of blessing. And God in his sovereignty, I'm able to be with my son's son. That is amazing. Thank you, Lord. And so he himself, as he's on his deathbed, is just staring at God. God is gracious. God is kind. He's powerful. He did more than I thought he would for me. And I'm such a sinner, Lord. Thank you. Thank you for your mercy. Thank you for his kindness. And then we'll, we'll look at these even later on. But he says in verse 15, the God before whom my fathers, Abraham and Isaac, walked. God is personal. God had a personal relationship with my fathers. My fathers had a personal relationship with them. God was real to them. Not only that, but God was my shepherd. Interesting. David didn't invent the metaphor shepherd. Apparently Jacob did. The the saved scoundrel uses the term shepherd before David does for God. And shepherd, verse 15, is the idea that God protects and God provides. And Jacob says, the God who has been my shepherd, not just since I've seen Joseph, but the God who has been my shepherd all my life to this day. I'm on my deathbed. I'm about to die. I'm sick. I I can say this testimony. Through all the ups and downs of my life, God has provided for me and he's protected me. Jacob is preaching the doctrine of God to his children. And then verse 16, he says, The angel who has redeemed me from all evil. The angel of the Lord is what I take that to be. The the pre-incarnate Christ has delivered me from all evil. Whether it's spiritual evil, physical evil, ultimately the Lord God has delivered me. Again, as he's about to die, he's preaching about God, about the Lord God, and he's, through through his message, telling us and telling Israel that's walking around in the wilderness, 
look at God. Not just glance, but give God your undivided, full attention. Fill your hearts with God. Not just a little bit of attention, but your main intention of your heart needs to be placed upon the Lord. And though it may get old, it doesn't get old to me. And I think it's a good time to share it is Psalm 34, verse 8. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. How blessed are all those who take refuge in him. Or you could look at Psalm 62. And at the end of Psalm 62, it's at verse 11. Once God has spoken, twice I have heard this, that power belongs to God. And loving kindness is yours, O Lord. And, and Psalm 62, over and over again, it says, He only is my rock. He only is my refuge. My soul, what rates in silence for God only. He is the rock of my strength. Trust in Him at all times, O people. Apart your heart before Him. God is a refuge for us. Psalm 63. O God, you are my God. I shall seek you earnestly. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh yearns for thee. Because your loving kindness is better than life. My lips will praise you. Our main problem, believers, is that we don't know God like we should. That's why Ed Welch wrote the book. Paraphrase the title, When God is Small and the World is Big. Or, When God is Small and People are Big. It's a very good book, and that's where a lot of our problems come from. For unbelievers, their problem is what? They don't know God. They reject God. Jesus Christ himself said in the high priestly prayer that he came for this person, that eternal life, he came for that reason, that eternal life is knowing God and Jesus Christ, his son. So I think what we should all seek to do is live today, and this is what Jonathan Edwards would say, live today like we were going to know that we we're going to be dying later on today. That we, in other words, we live in view of our death. And I don't want to be on my deathbed about to die thinking, I really didn't think about God that much until right now. And I might have about one hour to get right with God. Do you want to be in that place? Let's get right with God and seek to know God now. Even if you're a little child that's seven years old, it's your duty and your delight to seek to know God. You can know God. If you're 88, it's not too late to know God. The only time it's too late to know God is that moment you close your eyes and die. Then it's too late. But now it's not. Stare at God. Give him your undivided attention. God is found in his word. There's also a, a, a second element of this faith. That is, as we see Jacob on his deathbed, he, he's about to die. There's another message that he would give to Joseph and Joseph's sons, and to all of Israel, but even to the church, even to Pilgrim Bible Church. And we said that is reaching, uh, reach, you know, stretch. We could say reaching out with God's promises, stretching out with God's promises, sharing God's promises. 
We see in chapter 48, verse 1, that Joseph learns his father now is sick. And behold, again, is this attention getting word? Look, your father's sick, okay? it's He's old. He's, what now, I think 140-something. Pretty old. And he's going to die. So Joseph takes his two sons, Manasseh and Ephraim, with him. Now, by, by this time, again, they're over 17 years old, right? So they're a little bit over 17. Exactly how old, we're not sure. Joseph comes in with his sons. And note, the text says, Israel. God is fighting for, for Jacob. Usually this word Israel is used for Jacob with uh, good connotations. Joseph, uh, Israel collects his strength, right? Oh, here's my son and my son's sons. You know, people are coming in. So he gets up in bed. And Jacob goes right off into a, a speech. He begins to share. And he shares, you can see in verse 4, about the covenant promises of God. The promises that God made to him. I will make you a company of people. I will give this land. And you're going to have this everlasting possession. But then he switches and he says, these two, these two sons of yours, that were born to you in the land of Egypt. Before I came to you, they are what? Mine. Look at that in verse 5. They're mine. That would be like if Lisa's dad came to me and then went to my children and said, Thomas, Ellie, you're mine. You are my children. Jacob is basically saying, I adopt them. Joseph, I am an authority here. You might be second in command of Egypt, but I'm higher than you in this family. And I adopt Manasseh and Ephraim. They're mine. They're my children now. He's pulling rank on them. And he's saying they came from Egypt. Joseph, basically, you're married to an Egyptian woman. You have an Egyptian, a Egyptian princess. Your children basically are what then? They're not full-blown Jews or Israelis. right? They're half Egyptian. And what does Jacob say? They're mine. I'm including them in the promises of God. All the other children that are born to you, yes, they're yours and they can be here. But ultimately, Ephraim and Manasseh are going to be part of the promised plan of God. That's what he's saying. Just as Reuben and Simeon are. And realize, too, that what happens then is that there's not a tribe called Joseph, right? There's the 12 tribes of, of Israel, not the 13. And then Levi, they don't get land. They get the priesthood. And so God has his own plan and purpose and does things how he wants to, just as you read in Psalm 135 verse 6. But God is through Jacob, reaching out and taking these children of Joseph that were in a distant land, and he is specifically saying and setting up that Ephraim and Manasseh will actually have their own land and be their own tribes. It's a great act of 
privilege and benefit and mercy. Now, if you can look at verse 7, why does it bring up the part that, that Rachel died? Well, one, because he loves Rachel, right? After all these years, he's still in love with Rachel. But also, I, I think because Rachel was his love marriage wife, it was the marriage by love. And the children, therefore, from Rachel were, though he loved all of his children, he loved Joseph and Benjamin, it seems, the most. And so I think verse 7 is bringing out that Jacob was still wanting to love Rachel and love Rachel's children and wanted to bless them. And out of love and generosity, he's saying, Ephraim and Manasseh, I'm going to extend the promise of God so even they, so even there'll be tribes that are named after them. It's really, again, amazing. But I think this is what faith does. Faith reaches out. Faith is generous. Faith is kind. Faith is is merciful. Faith goes beyond. That is, Jacob could have just said, Joseph, God bless you, and you will have all the promises that are entitled to you through the Abrahamic covenant. But he's even going beyond and saying that not not just you and, and your descendants, but even in a special, significant way, Ephraim and Manasseh will have some type of special privilege to the extent that there will even be tribes named after them. For example, uh, is there with Judah's sons, with Dan's sons, with Asher's children, are, are there tribes of Israel named after them? Naphtali or, or Benjamin, are, are there tribes that are named after the tr- children of Benjamin? No. But there are Joseph. And that was by faith that Jacob is reaching out, stretching out, going beyond. This is what faith does. Well, how does this work out then? for the nation Israel. I would believe that now God, as the nation Israel is reading this text, and they're wandering around in the wilderness for about 40 years, and they learn about Hagar, and then they're learning about Manasseh and Ephraim, and how God does have a program to reach out to those that are, quote, not Jews. They go into the promised land, and then who do they meet? And who do they adopt? Rahab. And then if you go a little bit further, there's another woman that is adopted and brought in to the people of God. And her name is Ruth. And both those ladies were in the line. They were the great, great, great grandmothers of Jesus Christ. That is, there is this program of God because of his mercy that he's always reaching out in kindness and in grace and in mercy with his promises beyond what is usually and normally expected. God is generous in his kindness and his mercy and in his promises. And I believe here that Jacob is speaking with a type of authoritative, prophetic voice. 
Well, for you and I then, what does that mean? How does that speak to us? What does that call us to do? Well, I thought of two things. You can maybe think of some other things about being kind and generous with the promises of God to others. Number one, you could encourage another believer. You can encourage another believer, perhaps a believer struggling with God's provision. Well, you can learn Philippians 4.19. And God shall supply all of your needs according to his glorious riches in Christ Jesus. 1 John 1.7. Perhaps you meet a believer and their sin has been great. Is there a believer who doesn't have great sin somewhere in their life? Maybe there's a believer and they're under this horrible, ominous weight of sin, bleak. Do you know a promise of God that could encourage that believer? Is there something you could share with them to help them? Could you extend the mercy of God to them? First John 1, 7, the blood of Jesus cleanses us from all sin. I have met people here at Pilgrim, not here this morning, but here at Pilgrim before, that have told me, Tom, I, I've done sin, and I don't think that God could ever forgive me. Is that true? Even unbelief can be forgiven. Murder can be forgiven. Abortion can be forgiven. Because God, in Christ Jesus, but they, what Jesus Christ and the plan of God did in the cross is eternally and sufficiently effective and sufficient. Perhaps those that have engaged in abortion, whether doctors or our patients, we need to also encourage them that there's forgiveness. God forgives in Christ. There's mercy. Perhaps, second, not just encouraging believers, but even encouraging unbelievers, like we just mentioned, that there's forgiveness in Christ. Acts 3.19, Repent, therefore, in turn, that your sins may be wiped away. These are promises of God that, that we can share to others. And, of course, there, there's many. Uh, I would encourage you, check somebody today, Text somebody this week or 2 Corinthians 9.8 or 2 Corinthians 8.9 or Matthew 6.33. Learn four or five promises of God and just send out, how about just text one person this week with a promise of God? Not about God's wrath. <laughs> the person that sins will die. The wages of sin is death. If you share Romans 6.23, share the second half. Okay? The wage of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. So I think that's what you have in the, here in this text, is that Jacob, Israel, is, is reaching out with the promises of God, and it's God speaking through Jacob, ministering to Joseph, but also preparing Israel to think outward and not just inward. Number three, the third word. First, we said stare, then it's reach, reach out, and then a third word is follow. On Jacob's deathbed, his speech teaches us how to live in the present by following on. Following on. Even when God's ways seem odd to us, we follow on. Even when God's ways seem different than what we would do, we continue to follow him 
his word and his principles. The Lord may and does do things that we don't understand. There are many things in the providence of God I still don't get. I'm still clueless. I I may get to heaven. Maybe God's never going to answer some of my questions. But I still follow on. That is, I, I should follow one. And I think the text actually is emphasizing, out of this whole text, it seems the text is emphasizing, God at times will do things that you don't think he should do. God at times will do things that you don't think he should do. And I think the text emphasizes this. And we can look at the last and go all the way back. You can look at verse 20. Verse 20 ends with, thus he put Ephraim before Manasseh. Well, and the Middle Eastern culture, it was the firstborn that should get the primary blessing. Now, Jacob says, and it's God through Jacob, that Manasseh is going to be greatly blessed. That's not the issue. But Ephraim, even more blessed than Manasseh. But normally, it would be the firstborn, not the secondborn. Ephraim is the secondborn. But verse 20 ends by saying, thus he put the secondborn in front of the firstborn. That is odd. That's different. That's not normally how it's done. And if we were just to go back in the text, the text talks about how Joseph, verse 12 on, now his kids are at least 17 years old, and apparently they're sitting on Jacob's lap, or something like that, right? Sometimes now my son sits on, on my lap, and I love it, but he's getting a little bit older. He's strong now. I can imagine Manasseh and Ephraim, you can see this 147-year-old man, and loving sons and loving grandchildren, and they're all hugging right there. But Joseph comes up, okay, okay, you know, and apparently Jacob couldn't see that well. He asks, who are these? He's probably just being sure. You can see in the text where he says, who are these kids? Verse 8, who are these? There are some commentators and scholars that believe that is a technical covenantal phrase, a question statement. So, for example, like in a marriage ceremony, the wedding couple comes down and I would say, who gives this woman to this man? It is her mother and I. Some believe that this is a formal type of statement question like that. Perhaps. Maybe. But it could just be also that Jacob can't see very well. <laughs> and he's like, okay, I see some images and I hear some voices. I know that's Joseph. I, I, I know Ephraim and Manasseh, but just to be sure. And so Joseph then arranges his children, Manasseh and Ephraim, in such a way that Manasseh would get blessed by the primary right hand of blessing, and then Ephraim would get blessed, you know, with the second hand of blessing, not as primary. Well, it's very interesting that Israel understands that something might be going on. Now, out of all people, it is Israel and slash Jacob. They would understand what might be going on because he actually tricked his own father. His own father could not see. And here you have Jacob who cannot see that well. 
And so maybe now, however, not acting in unbelief, but acting in belief, he's being a little tricksy. Not acting in unbelief here, but acting in belief here. He pulls a fast one on Jacob, I'm sorry, on uh, Joseph, and crosses his arms like this. You have this older man that's cunning and wise, right? He's probably hearing, he's listening, he's serving as a type of prophet, having some type of prophetic authority because there are prophecies that are given in this text. And so he switches his arms, goes against custom. And what does Joseph say? Dad, dad, he can't see, you know, he's probably seen now. Dad, you got it backwards. Switch the hands. He's 147, he can't hear us probably, 147 years old. It's up 140. Dad! And even Joseph does what? The text says he tries to switch the hands. <laughs> right? It's funny. But then, what does Jacob say? Well, it says in verse 17 that it displeased Joseph. You know, he's a little bit upset. He grabs his father's hand. And Joseph says what? Don't do it, Father. But then his father says, I, I, I can see it in my head. You know, this uh, older man, I mean, really older, 140. He's like, I know, son, okay? I'm not that blind. I'm not that stupid, okay? I know what's going on. I know. He says it twice, right? I know, I know. Manasseh's going to be great. Ephraim's going to be greater. He did the exact opposite of what Joseph expected and Joseph wanted. And the text is emphasizing it. It's emphasizing it because it talks about it at the beginning, talks about it at the end, and a lot of the whole story is just talking about these arms and these hands. And right, Joseph, uh, Jacob is kind of blind. He he can't see. He doesn't know wh- what's going on. But he does know what's going on. And again, he's speaking as a type of prophet from God. So let me ask you, are, are there things in your life that happen that obviously God has done and you're like, I don't understand, God, you shouldn't have done that. That I, I just don't get it, God. H- have you ever been there? I don't understand. Why is this going on, Lord? That's not what I expected. This is where Joseph is at. Joseph is probably scratching his head. I mean, he, he tried to stop his father. My dad, see now. Don't do that, dad. Joseph, let go of me. I know, okay? God's speaking through me. God knows. It's almost like Jacob is saying, Joseph, I, I look at your life. Truly, you're wiser than me. But you're not all wise. <laughs> you're better than me, Joseph, but you're not all good. You know a lot. Truly, you're very gifted, but you're not God. You're not omniscient. You're not all wise. That's God and God alone. And so Joseph had to be humble to say, yes, Dad, and yes, Father. The Lord knows and the Lord's in control. Jacob says later on, 
God is my shepherd. And I think that that's why verses 15 and 16 are here, because right when all these hands things going on and the second is being put in front of the first, is Jacob says that God is very personal. My father, his father, was Abraham, and Abraham was a friend of God. Not only that, but God was a shepherd to me all my life. God protected me. God provided for me every day, every second of every day, until this day that I'm about to die. And that's 100% true. God will be, believers, God will be your shepherd. He will provide and he will protect you. Until that day when you're to die, then he will... And his providence pulled back briefly a type of protection, protection and provision so that you can receive the ultimate protection and provision with him in heaven forever and ever and ever. But I, I think what Jacob is trying to say to his children and to us is that God will do things that we don't understand. Not because God is crazy or because God is weird or because God is super, super mysterious, but because God is wiser, smarter, knows everything, and we're not as wise, as smart, and we don't know everything. And so some things that God does, we don't get it. It's not because God is bad or unwise. It's because really we're bad and unwise. And so God is reinforcing, I was a friend with Abraham. I was a caring protector and provider with Jacob. And I am the Redeemer. It's really amazing because there's so many pathways to the New Testament from this little passage right here where it talks about the doctrine of God. Jesus talks about that his disciples are his friends in John 15. And when it says that Abraham and Isaac walked with God, the Bible says that Abraham was a friend of God. Well, God is our friend, especially through our Lord and Savior, the eternal God, Jesus Christ. John 10 talks about Jesus being the shepherd, and the shepherd lays down his life for his sheep. And certainly, Jesus is the Redeemer. In Him, we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our sins, according to the riches of His grace, which He has lavished upon us. Ephesians 1, seven. That is, we can trust God even when things in our life are not going the way that we think they should go, because He is the provider, protector, deliverer, and He's our friend. And he's the best friend, the best redeemer, the best provider and protector. He is El Shaddai, all-sufficient strength to provide every need you, you need, emotionally, physically, spiritually. He is there for you. He was there for Joseph. He was there for Jacob. And he'll be there for us. And so we can trust him. So I think the point is we align to God and his ways, not our ways. Proverbs 3, 5, and 6, right? Trust the Lord of all your heart. Lean not on your own understanding. Acknowledge him in all your ways, and he will direct your path. There are many things we don't understand. We, we live by God's word. We live by precept. We live by biblical principles. But there are a lot of things in life that I 
don't get, I don't understand. I trust God. He's my shepherd, my friend, my provider, my protector, my redeemer, and I press on. And one day, I'll see him face to face. And that is the day. And there's no condemnation in Christ Jesus. He is my shepherd. He's your shepherd. There is also a, I'm sure there are more that are here, but there is a fourth and final word that brings out some of the truth in this passage that I want us to look at, and that is look. Look. That is looking forward to the future promises of God. Jacob, on his deathbed speech, teaches us how to live in the present by looking forward to God's promises. Faith lives in the present by trusting God for the future. Faith lives in the present by trusting God for the future. And I think we see this in this whole passage, but especially verses 21 and 22. So let me just share just briefly a few things. Looking forward to God's promises, what does that mean? Or what does that look like? Well, we can say it this way. It's living like man is, or or woman, any person is dispensable. I am dispensable. You are dispensable. The reason why I say that is because if you look at verse 21, Israel, Jacob says to Joseph, Look, behold. You know, I can see, you know, Jacob's on his bed. Bed. <coughs> Joseph comes in, and he comes with these kids. Oh, I, can't, I have to get up, I have to get up. You know, he's coughing. You know, he, he looks sickly, and, and definitely maybe. Look, guys, I'm going to die. Have you ever had a person say that to you? It's not, it's not easy. I'm going to die. Dr. Fusender, Tom, it was much different with him. Please leave me. I... I have a lot of work to do. I'm going to die. I can't talk to you. I got work to do. Here Joseph is. I'm going to die. I have just a little bit more of parting advice to you, Joseph. So we can say, I think, first, that looking forward to God's promises is realizing we and everybody else except for Jesus is dispensable. Remember, Israel has this by the, uh, the book of Genesis in the Pentateuch as they're going around in the wilderness. And they have a great leader, and the great leader's name is Moses. Part of the Red Sea, right? Moses, our leader, all these great miracles he can do. And what happens to Moses? He dies. He doesn't get to go into the promised land. Where there are giants that Israel has to face, their mighty, prophetic, amazing, superhero prophet leader, Moses, that saw God, can't go with them. Well, that's because Moses was what? Dispensable. Was Moses dispensable? Mm-hmm. God's not. Jesus isn't. The angel of the Lord isn't. Moses, in one sense, Moses wasn't necessary for the faithfulness of Israel. And as we're reading this, the Israelites would see the first patriarch, Abraham, 
What happened to Abraham? He died. Isaac, what happened to Isaac? Second patriarch. He died. He dead. What happened to Jacob? He also died. What happened to Joseph? He's also dead. What happened to David, King David? He's also dead. What happened to Solomon? He's also dead. What happened to Elijah? He's dead. Elisha, dead. Nehemiah, dead. Ezra, dead. Obadiah, Obadiah's dead. Malachi, dead. Zechariah, dead. Jeremiah, dead. Isaiah, dead. The warrior Gideon, dead. Samson, he's also dead. Which one's alive? Only one. Jesus Christ, our Lord, the Savior. And I think that Jacob, again, he now Jacob is being a shepherd. He's being a good dad. I'm going to die. I'm dispensable. You're dispensable. But here is one who is not dispensable. Look back at the text. But God will be with you. I'm gone. I'm going. (laughs) I'm not going to stay here. These are my kids. I'm I'm not going to stay here. If the Lord does not return in my lifetime, I'm going. All of us are going. But God is here. Always. And I think this is the point that's being made in the text. I'm about to die, but God will be with you. Living in the presence, looking forward to the future, is this understanding that no matter where I go, anywhere in the world, who's there? God. This is the great Emmanuel. That God is always with me. God is always present. I will never be outside of his presence. And it's not just, I don't think, here or in Matthew 28, 19, where it says, I will never leave you or forsake you. It's not just the omnipresence of God. That is true. But it is the special, empowering presence of God by his Holy Spirit. But also, because I'm a covenantal person, I'm in the promises of God, God's grace is always with me and always for me. And his spirit is also with me, empowering me all the time. And there will come a time when I will be with him. Now he is with me, but there will come a time when I'll be where I will be with him. And this gives me great encouragement when the text says, but God will be with you. What I would say to to my wife and, and especially to my kids, to, to Thomas and Ellie, when I'm when my kids are sixty, how old will I be? Hundred and let's say one hundred and five. Am I going to be here when I'm one hundred and five? I doubt it. <laughs> I doubt that very much. So I love my family, I love you. But when you're 60, I'm not going to be here. But who will be here? God. If the Lord doesn't come back, I pray he comes back. I think he's going to come back in my lifetime. That's what Paul apparently prayed and, and thought. I'm praying and hoping for that. But if not, if I was to die tomorrow, who's here? God. God, the The Lord. And so that's what Jacob is saying to Joseph. So we live in light 
of the presence that I'm dispensable, God is not. And God, yes, by his omnipresence, but also by the special empowering presence of his spirit is here with me. But he's also with the kids and he can take care uh, of your children and, and your spouses and your relatives and the church. God, God is here. And so we live in light of that promise. And even in the text further, he says, and bring you back to the land of your fathers. God's going to fulfill the promise of the land to you. You're going to have that blessed land. And even he says in verse 22, I give you one portion more than your brothers, which I took from the hand of the Amorite with my sword and my bow. Probably Shechem. I'm going to give you... By, and it's God speaking through Jacob. I, I'm going to give you not just the promise, but even more of the promise. Again, God is being generous. He's being bountiful. And so Israel, the nation Israel, is reading this as they're wandering around in the wilderness. And they're learning about the character of God. Right now, God is giving this land back to Joseph. While participating in this promised plan of God. And God is being generous. Thank you, Lord. And then for you and I, for us to live in the future, looking at the future of God's promises, what is the future land we're going to enjoy? We're going to enjoy a land that is infinitely greater than the land of Israel. A world of perfect love and perfect glory where there is no sin, no fighting, no destruction, no darkness, ever and ever and ever. And the Bible says not only will we see Jesus and be glorified and be like him, but the Bible even says that we will reign with him. This is the promised plan of God. This is how we live. We live in the present by trusting God's promises for the future. That is... I'm so thankful that God answered our prayers. We prayed for so long that abortion would not be a constitutional right. So abortion is not a constitutional right in the United States of America. So praise God for that. And I'm thankful for the U.S. But the U.S. isn't the promised land. The U.S. isn't ultimately our home. Our home is heaven with Jesus. And so that is the ultimate promise that we're looking for. So for me to live is Christ, to die is what? Gain. So this truth of scripture to drive the fear of death out of my life. I, I want to get my life ready so I can meet Christ that well. So when I die, I'm ready to meet him. So I live by his promises now. I want to be sure my family can can be well, that they can be sufficiently provided for. But I also trust God for that. And then I am living in the present by looking at the future promises of God that I'm going to be with Christ and I'm going to reign with him and I'm going to enjoy him forever. And that frees me up actually to live stronger and more vibrantly in the present. I think of Ephesians 1-7 and Ephesians 2-7, especially 2-7, that in the ages to come, we will experience the surpassing riches of God's kindness from age to age. And so that's a promise. And so I'm living in light of that. Now, as I conclude, just two brief things. I, I, I do fail at keeping my promises much more than I would like, and I'm sure much more than my kids would like. 
But I, at times, will ask my kids, does Daddy keep all of his promises? And sometimes I think, you know, how do you answer your dad when he asks you that question? What's going to happen? And they'll say, uh, not all of them, no. Who does keep all of their promises? God. God would keep all of his promises. You can trust him without reservation. Brothers and sisters, let us listen to this deathbed speech from a dying believer. Jacob is a believer. Have you listened? Listen. Do you hear what he's saying? Just four words. If you and I can remember them. Stare. Reach. Follow. The fourth word is look. But you can summarize that by just saying, trust the Lord. He is good. Trust the Lord. He is good. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this passage. We thank you that the deathbed of a believer or our own deathbed doesn't have to scare us because we know that you're good and that you do good and we give you the glory. May we live by faith in the present in light of this deathbed speech, Lord. And we give you the glory for Christ's sake. Amen.